Good morning. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Dave Hintz, and I am the bachelor pastor of Calvary Bible Church. <laughs> and I was real excited about the opportunity to preach to you all this morning on a special message entitled, Ten Things to Look For in a Godly Husband. But Jack told me that such a sermon might be a little bit self-serving, so I went with Plan B on the Great Commission. I am uh, the college and evangelism pastor here, and we do have a college group. For those of you who don't know, check the bulletin. And I'm real excited about being a part of the college ministry because college was a time when my life was radically changed. I went into college with the ambition of being rich. Being a lawyer, getting an MBA or something like that so that I could drive a sports car and spend a lot of money and die pretty happy. But fortunately, my priorities changed from a focus upon myself to a focus upon the Lord as I became a Christian in college. And with that, I was making a lot of new decisions as my life was radically redirected spiritually. And as I continued to figure out the Christian life and submit more and more areas of my life, my ambition of being a lawyer or a a successful businessman began to fade with that. And I remember a crucial turning point. I was in my marketing class and we watched a video about what life is like out in the workforce. And there was a video of a woman selling Lipton soup mixes. She would go from store to store to store putting little displays out to sell Lipton soup mixes and trying to get stores to buy more Lipton soup mixes. Now, I don't know about you, but selling soup or soup being the driving force of my life and the promotion of soup didn't seem to be a high priority. It might have been for Esau, but not necessarily for me. And so I began to think, well, what else is there to live for? Perhaps selling pharmaceuticals. Let's say you find the cure for cancer, And he distributed it to everyone. People live longer, but they don't live forever. See, when you find the cure for cancer, what you're going to find is that there's going to be a new market for heart disease research because people are going to die of something else. Ultimately, I became convinced that there was only one cause, one earthly cause of committing my life to, and that was to see people come into a saving relationship with Christ. Only that changes eternity. People will always die. People will always suffer. And as much as we should try to alleviate suffering as much as possible, what good is it if they're going to go to hell right afterwards? Now, many of you today come to church, and that's about it. You attend, you sit in the pews. But I want to let you know that there is more to life, there's more to the Christian life than just attendance. There's more, than, more to the Christian life than just singing, listening to the Word, and then going out and living normal lives. Your life has a purpose. And as we talk about the Great Commission today, I want all of you to take a look at your life and see where your priorities are. Some of you might be very happy and content with your job, and perhaps God might use this as an instrument to cause you to reevaluate your life about whether or not you should be even having a job here, but perhaps overseas. ABWE, that was a missions organization whose plane got shot down, actually recruits middle-aged individuals and families to go onto the mission field. And the goal is that we look through Matthew 28, 16 through 20, specifically 18 through 20, 
The goal of this is that we're going to look at three ways of fulfilling God's will for your earthly life so that you will realize the blessings of obedience to keeping one of God's greatest commandments. Three ways of fulfilling God's will for your earthly life so that you will realize the full blessing of complete obedience to Christ. And those three points, for those of you who take notes, are number one, to submit to the authority of Christ. And that's from verse 18. Verse 18, submit to the authority of Christ. From verses 19 through 28, we have follow the strategy of Christ. Follow the strategy of, stra- strategy of Christ from verse 19 through 28. Then finally, from 20b, take courage in the comfort of Christ. Take courage in the comfort of Christ. Allow me, follow me as I read. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, go back with me 2,000 years to the time of Christ. You are a Palestinian Jew who has become acclimated to years of Roman domination. And you long and you earnestly desire to have the Roman rule be broken so that God can rule your people and Israel can once again be exalted as a great nation. And you think about in the past how God has overturned vast empires like the Egyptians and Egyptians and the Babylonians to rescue your people. And knowing that your people are weak and that there's no way that in and of yourselves you could stand up to the Roman rule, you began to place your faith in God. Specifically, one who God has promised, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Now you hear of this man named Jesus. One who begins to teach with authority. One who a Roman centurion recognizes as one having authority. One who gives authority to his followers to heal and cast out illness. He, in your mind, he might be the anointed one. He might be the Messiah. So you follow him. You listen to his sermons. You watch him heal people. You watch him interact. You watch him rebuke the Pharisees. And now it's before Passover, and he's going to make that long march into the city of Jerusalem. Ascend to the throne and rule God's people. But something very remarkable happens. Instead of ascending to the throne of David, he ascends to the cross. A Roman instrument of torture, and he dies. And with it, your hopes and aspirations for a free Israel die with it. So you go back up to Galilee where he did most of his ministry, defeated and depressed until you hear these rumors about this man named Jesus rising again. 
You hear about the story of Thomas, the last holdout of the apostles, who doubted the resurrection of Christ and said, I won't believe until I see him, until I can feel his scars. And Jesus appears to him. The apostles come up from Jerusalem to Galilee, fully persuaded, waiting for a final message. And so there you join them on a mountaintop with 500 or so other people waiting for Jesus. You see him walking towards you, but you're not sure if it's him. Some people bow down and worship him, but you're more hesitant because you don't want to worship anything that's not God. But then he makes a definitive, declarative statement that answers all doubters. In verse 18, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The first point, to fulfill the Great Commission, you need to submit to the authority of Christ. If you read through the book of Matthew, you'll see that authority is a dominant theme. In Matthew 7.29, after he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, where he redefines the laws, or for that matter, gives a correct perception and sense of the law, everyone was amazed that here the son of a carpenter is one who teaches as having authority. When he interacts with the Roman centurion, the Roman centurion is one who recognizes him in Roman, or sorry, Matthew 8.9 as one having authority to heal. In Matthew 10.1, he has the authority to give authority to heal and cure illness. Authority was an issue, and with that, there was an expectation about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, to which he answers very conclusively with this statement. All authority in heaven, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth as essentially the coronation of the Messiah. Just like Napoleon crowned himself, the Messiah crowned himself. God has given him rule over heaven and on earth and over you and the apostles as well. And in light of this, in light of the fact that he has made a stunning statement of his authority, he issues the command. This authority adds weight to the command. If you look at verse 19, he says, Go therefore. Now one little trick you might have heard in interpreting the Bible is, when you see a therefore, you've got to ask yourself, what is the there? Four, right? Well, the therefore adds force and weight to the command that follows it. If my mom really wants me to get me to do something, all that she has to do is say this, David Edward Hintz. When she uses my middle name, I know I'm in trouble. In light of the fact that I have given birth to you, it took 30 hours or so, that I have fed you, I've changed every dirty, dingy diaper, I've taken care of you when you couldn't take care of yourself. And the fact that you wrecked my car when you were 16 years old, could you take out the trash for me? Now, I'm going to be more prone to do that, right? Now, in light of the fact that Jesus has said, I have all authority, I'm your Messiah, your King, your Sovereign, go and make disciples of all nations. His authority compels us to obey. Secondly, is that authority, knowing his authority, gives you a good perspective on evangelism. For instance, he doesn't just have authority over you. He has authority over the people we share with as well. Did you know 
that sharing the gospel or receiving the gospel is actually a command? In Acts 17.30, it says the following. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. All we're doing is when we're presenting the gospels, we're telling people to obey their king. Now, I used to work at Circuit City as a salesman. And it's pretty interesting because every once in a while you'll have somebody come into the store and they'll say, what's the cheapest TV you got? I show them the cheapest TV and in my mind I think, that's $1 commission. Then they say, what is the cheapest VCR that you have? So I show them the cheapest VCR and I think, 50 cents. And so then they pull up, you know, like they think they're doing me a favor and I'm only making a buck fifty, and they say, what kind of discount can you give me on this? And I think, $1.50. But I call, they say, call your manager. So I call my manager and I say, John, this guy's a real faithful customer. Apparently he buys all this stuff here. Uh, we have this TV and this VCR. What kind of discount can you give him? None? Okay. And so I tell him, can't give you any discount. See, now he could take issue with me, and he could say, what do you mean you can't give me any discount? I say, I don't have the authority to do it. I'm just doing what my boss is telling me. See, when you're sharing your faith, knowing about the authority of Christ, knowing that they have authority, that they have to answer to Christ and not to you, means that when people get mad, when people get angry, when people get irate at you, provided that you're sharing the gospel tactfully, not just being obnoxious, is a great reminder that they don't need to take issue with you. Their problem is with God. You are just one who is carrying out orders and just telling them to obey. So a lot of times people are you know, afraid of being pushy or, or going over the edge, but the fact is we are just telling people what they should be doing. Sharing the gospel is no more pushy than a boss who is telling their lazy employee to get to work. Now, granted, we want to be tactful and sensitive, but we've got to put it in perspective where we can't allow the authority of men or the perceived authority of men to stop us from doing our job. The second aspect we need to follow is to follow the strategy of Christ, and we get this from 19 to 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Now, there's going to be four points we're going to get from this. The first one is related to going. Now, if you were to look at the structure of this verse, the main verb is actually make disciples. And you have different ways of modifying that. You make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching them to obey. But going and making disciples, go and make disciples, has a very special marriage to it. It's a fancy Greek term called attendant circumstance. Now, I'll just kind of try to illustrate that to you. Now, let's say I were to look at my intern. I actually have an intern as a college pastor. It's one of the perks. And I were to say, go, Chris, and wash my car. Because that's what you do with interns. They get coffee for the elders, back rubs, and they teach Sunday school every once in a while. <laughs> and so I throw in my car keys. Now, Chris, to wash my car, he has to go to my car And do so. Either take it to your car wash or get the suds out. Within that command, there's a lot of implicit commands with it. Now, the object of making disciples is all nations. The disciples could not do so if they're just there on Galilee. It's hard to share. It's hard for you all to go make disciples of all nations if you just hang out in the church the whole time. Inherent in that command is going, is reaching out. 
Now, this is a real profound comment that Jesus is making. See, what he's doing right here at this moment is switching the model of evangelism for Israel. See, beforehand, Israel believed in what I term magnet evangelism, where they were a chosen nation of God and they were to draw all men to Israel and then show them the way to the Lord. And if you turn with me, we'll do a brief survey of Old Test of the Old Testament. Actually, it's going to be really brief. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And you'll see what I mean. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. When I hear the pages stop turning, I'll start reading. Twelve, one through 3. Okay. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless all those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And this is the key point right here. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That somehow God is going to use Abraham, Abraham's offspring, which is Israel, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And then he gets a little bit more specific. Flip ahead to Exodus 19.5 and 6. Exodus 19.5 and 6. Now we've established that Israel will be a blessing to all those, all the families of the earth. And and this is more specific. Starting in 19.5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, a priest is someone who intercedes on behalf of a larger populace to God, right? Israel was going to be the world's priest. The design was that people would go to Israel and Israel would direct them towards God. That God would draw all men to themselves. And this is what is going to happen in the millennium. When Christ comes back, he's going to set his reign on earth. He's going to reign in Israel. And all the people will worship God as they come to Israel. Yet a radical change of direction is happening. And this was the original intent of Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 10, 9. You want to turn there? I'm sorry, it's uh, 10, 5. Matthew 10, 5. You see that Jesus had this strategy originally. Matthew 10.5 says, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. Isn't that interesting? In 10.5 he says, Don't go to the Gentiles. In Matthew 28.19 he says, Go to the Gentiles. So what changed? What changed is that Israel rejected the Messiah. That they did not avail themselves nor avail their land to be used to draw all men to themselves. And so what does God do? He raises up the church to go to all nations. Instead of doing magnet evangelism, we have now switched to centrifuge evangelism. See, many times we like to think that this church is a place where we evangelize the lost. 
that we are to draw seeking people to our church, we share our faith, and then we send them out. But the design is not that. We are to go into all nations. We don't believe in outreach, although that is a good method for certain occasions. It's not as much an outreach focus for evangelism, but a reaching out focus. We don't bring people here to evangelize. We make, bring people here to become evangelists to go out into your community. So the thing is, Jack, myself, Justin, John, whoever, we are not paid to do your job. You have friends and you have neighbors and you have one crucial advantage which we don't have, and that is a relationship. In the time that it would take me to build a relationship with your friends, you could easily build up an arsenal of evangelistic messages. In four hours, you can sit down and learn how to share your faith and just approach him, and you can do it a lot quicker and better and easier than myself. So the Great Commission and obedience to the Great Commission means that you yourselves go out into all nations. I'm going out there with you, and I'm trying to do everything to prepare you to share your faith, but in the end, the responsibility is with you. You have been given a personal ministry which you must be faithful to. For some of you, it might be knocking on doors. For others, it might be a quiet event witnessing in your, in your workplace or even in your home with your children or at the PTA. The point is, it's your job to share your faith, just like it's my job to share my faith. But it's not my job to share your faith. The next point is the concept of making disciples, the object of it. One commentator cites the following. In this gospel, a disciple is both a learner and a follower. A disciple takes Jesus as his teacher and learns from him, and a disciple also follows Jesus. The life of a disciple is different because of his attachment to Jesus. The master is not giving a command to merely secure nominal adherence to a group, but one that will secure a wholehearted commitment to a person. I heard of a story of this campus group in Northwest, in the Northwest, and what they would do is they'd take 1 Corinthians... 12.13, which says, if any man says that Jesus is Lord, he can only do so by the Holy Spirit. So they'd take a card that would say, Jesus is Lord, and they'd ask people, what does uh, this say? Jesus is Lord? Yes. You know, that was a convert. And so often we focus so much on making decisions and chalking people up. We had this many decisions, this many baptisms. But the object of the Great Commission is not just sharing your faith. The object is to make disciples, is to make people wholeheartedly committed to Christ. And to do that, you have to lead by example. Now, how many of you would go to a Weight Watchers seminar that's being taught by a 5'1", 400-pound woman? None? Yeah, if you're going to teach someone to be a disciple of Christ, to be a wholehearted follower of Christ... You need to be one yourself. And to do that, there's two ways of making disciples that are outlined. One is by baptizing, and the other one is by teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. Now, baptizing is real interesting. If you look in verse 20, he says, Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, my understanding of this would be that when we baptize up in the baptism tank... We do it as almost an officiator of a wedding, where by the power invested in me, I baptize you. But there's a real different and and what I believe a very profound 
profound concept that's found in here. See, the English word is in, but I believe a better translation of it is into. It's the same word where we get eisegesis from. That's when you read a concept into the text. That we are to baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting because the name is singular, but the Father shares that name, the Son shares that name, and the Holy Spirit shares that name as well. This is a very clear, concise definition of the Trinity. All three personalities share one name, one essence. And we are to be baptized into that name. Now, a similar concept is found in Galatians 3.26. It says this, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then 3.27, this is key. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. See, it's not so much officiating like a wedding where you pronounce a man and wife and there you have it. What happens at a wedding is a deep spiritual union where the man and the woman become one flesh. When we baptize people, when we're baptizing in this sense, as we are bringing them into a spiritual relationship with Christ, we're baptizing them into the church. The goal is to get them saved. Now, in order to do this, what must happen? In order for you to do this, to fulfill God's will for your life, you need to be able to articulate the gospel. Now, here's an experiment for you all to do over lunch. Sit down with your wife or with your husband or with a friend and try to share the gospel using just a Bible. Using just a Bible, can you lead someone to Christ? Can you explain why Christ died? Can you explain what sin is? Can you explain what repentance is? Many of you could probably do that if you have about four or five hours. But, and some of you could do it in about 15 minutes because you have been trained in how to articulate your faith. And I understand that it's kind of a scary thing that when a pressure comes, it's very difficult to do so. But that is why you need to be prepared at all times to be able to give an account for the hope that is within you, to learn how to share your faith. See, Christians who can't share their faith are similar to lifeguards who can't swim. They see people dying, but they can't do anything about it. If you are a soldier of Christ, you need to be able to fire the rifle of the gospel. And to do so is really easy. If you can pass a driver's license test, I believe that you could probably share your faith. If you learn how to drive the car, you can probably learn how to use the gospel in witnessing. You know, some helpful suggestions is to get one of the tracks that we have out in the foyer and just memorize it. Or take some key verses in the Bible, like Romans 3.23, it talks about how for all have fallen short of the glory of God. And right next to Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8, which says, Why we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you can actually chain reference your Bible so that you can just turn through it and it'll take you to every single passage that has to do with evangelism. Another thing that we're going to do to try and help you all fulfill this is after Jack is done with his Bible doctrine class, I'll be teaching an evangelism class to learn how to share your faith. But the point is you need to have the heart to do so. The heart that wants to baptize people into Christ Jesus. A heart that wants to share his faith and reach out to the lost. And if you are willing and you're earnest and you desire to do so, God will be faithful through the resources given at this church to help you accomplish that. The second aspect is to teach them to obey. To make disciples is not about getting nominal adherence. It's to get people who understand the scriptures and who seek to obey it. To teach people to obey Christ is to 
is to mean that you have familiarity with his commandments and with his teachings. That you know about Christ's discourses, that you know about his parables, that you know about his example, his stories, his assurances. And that you're able to effectively use the word of God to help people grow. When you listen in on this sermon, it's so easy to just sit here, take it in and see what you can get out of it. But you shouldn't listen to it that way. You have to listen to the sermon for not only what you can get out of it, but what other people can get out of it as well. How can I use this to help my friends? How can I use this to help my children? How can I use this to help the people in the youth group grow closer to the Lord? In our small group, we take turns leading the discussion. All of us will read a chapter a week. The whole small group is supposed to do so, but unfortunately not everybody reads the chapter. But it is amazing that when people are assigned to teach the small group, they actually read the chapter and they read it well because they know that they are going to have to present this information to everybody else. See, if we are to teach people to obey all the commandments, we need to know the content and we need to know that the focus is not necessarily intellectual adherence to the gospel. It is not just to understand doctrine. It is to rightfully apply doctrine. It's not enough to know that God commands us to stay out of immoral relationships. We might know that intellectually. We need to stay out of immoral relationships. The whole concept and the whole purpose of teaching here, the whole purpose of me being up here, is to teach you so that you might go out and obey the commandments of Christ. And again, something that you need to consider is, am I an obedient Christian? Can I teach people with integrity, knowing that I want them to obey what God is commanding as well. And so the two points that we see from here is, one, you need to know the content of the scriptures, and two, you need to teach them to obey the scriptures. See, oftentimes I think we we look at making disciples and we think it's just witnessing, but there's more to it. It's about investing your life in individuals, to see them come to Christ and to continue to mentor them, to disciple them and to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. Here is a thought for you. Would you rather lead someone to Christ every single day for the rest of your life or lead one person to Christ a year and then the next year the two of you lead two people to Christ and then the next year the four of you lead eight people to Christ? Now if you know your calculus you could probably figure out that in 33 years, the entire planet population of 6 billion will be reached. In 33 years. Now, if you were to share someone with Christ every single day, during that time, we'd see about 12,000 people come to know the Lord. You don't need to necessarily have a real broad ministry. But if you just make it a goal and pray and ask God to lead one person to Christ this year, You'd be on your way, this church would be on our way to doubling in size in just one year, and we'd call that a revival, correct? And this is for everyone. Anyone who calls himself a Christian, whether you're 10 years old or 80 years old, you have been entrusted with the commission and a stewardship over the ministry that you have to not just evangelize, but to make disciples and commit yourself to that process. The next point is to take courage in the comfort of Christ. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I think this might be my favorite part of the Great Commission because this is one that I really relate to well. Some of you might know that I was a missionary in Hungary for 
a couple years. And it's real interesting because I was a missionary and I was supposed to share my faith. I was getting paid to do that. And we had our first outreach. And at our outreach, we were doing these surveys where people would fill out this spiritual interest questionnaire and then we would follow up on them to see if they wanted to talk more about the gospel. So Ryan, my stint or my missionary co-worker and I, we got a table, we put it in the cafeteria and we put up a big poster that said spiritual interest questionnaires. This Hungarian comes and he looks at the poster, then he looks at us. He looks at the poster and says, Hare Krishna's. Then he looks at us and says, Hare Krishna's. Then he tells a whole cafeteria that we're Hare Krishna's. Now, at that point, Ryan and I were like scared little girls. No offense to the little girls in the audience, but we were petrified. Everybody thought we were Hare Krishna's. People would walk by and we'd just try to hand them some candy, and you know, we were just timid. And then Nikki came over and asked us how many surveys we had done, and we had about five, and she asked why, and we said, well, um, this guy, he, he looked at us, and he, he thought he, we were Hare Krishna's, and everybody thinks we're Hare Krishna's. <laughs> yeah. And then Nikki looked at us in a real feminine way, but a very stern way, and said, Gentlemen, we are not the Hare Krishnas. I said, oh yeah, of course we're not. See, the Mormons who are knocking on your neighbor's doors and the Jehovah Witnesses who nobody likes, but they keep on evangelizing anyway, have human courage to share their faith. Isn't that amazing? The people who are proselytizing your neighbors are going out there in and of their flesh. They don't have the message of Christ. They don't have the authority of Christ. And they certainly don't have the spirit of Christ. See, the advantage that we have as Christians is is found in this. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In the Greek, Christ is saying, I myself am with you. When you go out sharing your faith, you are not alone. Christ is with you. And he will be with you in spiritual form until he comes back at the end of the age in bodily form. The advantage that we have as Christians in evangelism is that we have the message, we have the authority and the mandate to do it, but we also have the presence of Christ. You may not know how to share your faith accurately. You may not be as winsome or articulate as some people in this church, but the fact is if you are humble and obedient and you have legitimately placed your faith in Christ, Christ will be with you. And it might be a scary thing, but you know what? When you step out in your own fear, you are not trusting yourself during that evangelistic appointment. You are trusting God. And that is a powerful witness. As you share in your own fear and trembling out of reverence for God, asking God to give you the grace, to give you the words, to lead this person to the Lord so that they might be redeemed, so that they might be rescued from the pit of hell. Christ is with you. Christ wants you to do that, and he has given you all the resources to do so. Christ has given you the authority and the mandate to do so. Christ has given you the strategy to do so, and Christ has given you the faith to do so. So why is it that some people aren't doing it? Perhaps your priorities might be out of whack. Perhaps you're too busy spending time at your business watching TV, watching sports, playing video games, what have you, to really reach out and be a gospel witness for Christ. And many of you might have some real legitimate excuses where, due to circumstances in your life, it is very difficult for you to spend the extra time in ministry. 
But any excuse that you have, brothers and sisters, it really needs to be good. Because we're all going to stand before God at the Bema seat and give an account for our life. And one thing we're not going to wish we did less of is evangelism and making disciples. And for those of you who who are kind of charged up and you want to go out and share your faith, let me give you a little five-step plan to help you become obedient to this. First thing you need to do is you need to repent and ask God for forgiveness. You need to repent and ask God for forgiveness. If you have been unfaithful to this command, I mean, it is a sin. We think about sin of, of swearing or committing immorality or having wicked thoughts. But not being obedient to this commandment is also sin as well, so you need to repent. The second aspect is you need to pray. Ask God to give you opportunities to share your faith. Ask, pray for the salvation of your friends and of your neighbors. The, second, the third thing is to learn how to articulate the gospel. Take a gospel tract or take the class or look at certain pertinent passages in Scripture, or even make an appointment with me or any of the other pastors and say, I want to learn how to share my faith, and we will be happy to teach you how to do it. Next one, next point, point number four, is just to step out in faith. Just trust God. You may not know all the answers, but try and trust God for the results. And the fifth one, this is just more practical, learn how to be a good question asker. If you want to get into a gospel conversation at work, try this question out. Do you ever go to church? Why, why not? And just ask them a lot of questions. Spend the first half hour asking them about their spiritual life. Another question is, do you ever think about spiritual things? Everybody does, for the most part. Just feed that conversation. Talk with them for about a half hour or so. And then say, you know what the Bible says about that? And share the gospel. There'll be more ideas like this, but these are just to get you on the right track. But in the end, what it comes down to is really having a heart for obedience and a heart for the Lord. Charles Spurgeon was quoted earlier in the monologue done by Jay, and he wrote this quote, which I believe is really profound. He says the following, At any rate, if a man will go down to hell, I would like that we should make it very difficult for him to get there. If it will not turn to Christ, I would that we were resolved that it should not be for a want of being prayed for or for a lack of being earnestly pleaded with. Ladies and gentlemen, if people, if our friends and neighbors are going to jump into the pit of hell, may they have to jump over our dead bodies. May it be our passion and our desire to see God glorified by seeing other people come into a saving relationship with Him so they might glorify God forever. Ladies and gentlemen, the Great Commission is not just something we add to the Christian life. It is the Christian life. Our priority, it is priority number one, and we as a church need to be an evangelical church. We need to honor God by telling the world about this great person called Jesus Christ who has rescued us and saved us from the pit of hell. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you just for this, your word that you've given us. Lord, I pray for anyone who has been unfaithful to this great commission. Lord, I, I ask for forgiveness for all the times I have been timid and I have fallen short. And I just pray that you'll make it the drive and the passion of this church for other people to know you and to come into a saving relationship with you. Lord, you have transformed my life. You have transformed our lives. And we just pray for a transformation of the city of Burbank. Lord, we pray that people will come to know you. Lord, we pray for faithfulness among our members, that they will step out as brave soldiers of Christ and make it difficult for people to go to hell. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.